so beautiful. Thank you, choir, what a gift. A lullaby dedicated to a civil rights leader. If the thundercloud passes rain, so let it rain. There can be no life without rain, without water. Water is life. Water is life. This was the refrain this past Tuesday at City Hall on signs, on flags, carried in human voices. Water is life. Last Tuesday, I found myself gathered with 400 other people, including our interfaith partners at Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light, being introduced to two young people in the rotunda at Minneapolis City Hall, two young people wearing the traditional garments of their people. With their heads held high, 15-year-old Nolan Berglund and 17-year-old Nina Berglund, both members of the Northern Cheyenne and Oglala Lakota tribes, descended the rotunda stairs to personally deliver petitions to Hennepin County Sheriff Richard Stanick, petitions demanding that we call back all Hennepin County Special Forces that were sent to the conflict over the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock in North Dakota. This is a conflict which ignores and insults the sovereignty of native people, the sacredness of their religious sites, and threatens to contaminate drinking water and wreak environmental disaster. This courageous gesture echoed so many standoffs between native peoples and those whose greed and entitlement would hurt and exploit them when it comes in conflict with personal gain. And in that moment, we all found ourselves in that rotunda in the flow of a conflict embedded in our country's formation, gathered in solidarity with these leaders who had yet to graduate from high school, yet who carried the power of their ancestors with them. We witnessed a petition get delivered by the future with a root system inconceivably deep. This morning, Alice Walker reminded us that the grace with which we embrace life, in spite of the pain, the sorrow, is always a measure of what has gone before. So much of who we are, so much of the grace with which we move through life is a measure of what has gone before. It's the measure of the strength that our ancestors called upon a measure of how they were shown love, a measure of how they survived, a measure of how they found pleasure in being alive. We all come from somewhere and from multiple somewheres probably, living lives in this world that our forebears handed down to us having done the best that they knew how. And as Adrian reminded us this morning, we inherit the triumphs and the laudable values of our forebears as well as their shortcomings and their grave mistakes. 
And all of this has brought us to today, to this uniquely intense and bizarre moment in history. A time when we cannot afford to set aside the memories of what has come before. Theologian Walter Brueggemann says that memory produces hope in the same way that amnesia produces despair. We must actively and collectively remember in this time when history and truth have become so slippery and elusive. We must try to keep our arms around the whole story in its complexity, its fullness, in this climate where facts are mangled or outright denied, where climate change is contested despite the evidence, when women who've been assaulted are pushed aside, when the strength and goodness in black communities is ignored, and our Latino and Muslim and immigrant kin are framed as dangerous criminals, when displaced and traumatized Syrians seeking sanctuary struggle to land somewhere. Memory produces hope in the same way that amnesia produces despair. During this disturbing time, as the rules of civility, decency, and basic morality are ignored in the political arena, as we witness our history being misremembered and our present being misrepresented, we must engage in remembering who we are and the values that ground us. And there's a kind of amnesia at play here that is very tempting. A forgetting of our roots and our story that comes with privilege, that comes with assimilation, that comes with consumerism. And this amnesia, it feeds an illusion of autonomy, of self-control, of being self-sufficient. And in Walter Brueggemann's words, it tempts us to forget who our maker is. And for me, this kind of amnesia is incredibly familiar. I feel myself in the thick of it every day. And it can be soul crushing. Because when we forget that we are connected to one another and we are embedded in history, when amnesia forces us out of touch with that sense of contingency that's at the core of the religious impulse, that knowing that our very living is dependent on so much that is outside of our control and exists within a sacred, interdependent mystery and wholeness, when we lose the awareness of our contingency, our dependence and interdependence, and we imagine that we are just utterly separate, that we are self-contained, that we, when we let ourselves be defined by shallow understandings of achievement, shallow understandings of worth, that is when despair can take us and we relinquish our power and we watch hope and meaning slip through our fingers. Memory produces hope 
in the same way that amnesia produces despair. For me, one way that memory produces hope is through my family, although maybe not in the way that you might expect. Both my husband Jason and I come from families with painful histories, histories of trauma, abandonment, addiction, and dislocation. My dad has shared his basic parenting strategy with me many times. It goes like this. In any given scenario, he just thinks about what his father would have done, and then he does the opposite. I saw you mouthing it with me there. <laughs> Maybe some of you are familiar with this strategy. Just don't do what they did. There's so much I could share here, but here are just some pieces of the story. <clears throat> On my father's side of the family, my Jewish grandmother and grandfather escaped Poland and Germany, respectively, as the Holocaust loomed. They left their parents, they left their siblings, many of whom were taken to concentration camps and perished at the hands of the Nazis. In the late 1930s, my grandmother's first husband was killed by sniper fire while having tea outside his home in what was then British-occupied Palestine. In the mid-1970s, this same grandmother's second husband, who was my dad's father, was beaten and killed by a young man trying to rob his store. Both of my parents had fathers who did not know how to show the most basic affection and evidence of love. Both of my husband's parents had fathers who fought in World War II and came home broken inside. They fell in love, they brought children into the world, and subsequently they abandoned their respective families. Both of their mothers struggled to navigate divorce, single motherhood, and financial strain. Our parents had childhoods marked by parents and siblings with deep, painful depressions, with untreated bipolar disorder and other mental health challenges. These childhoods were marked by experiences of two of their mothers leaving their small children to receive inpatient treatment after psychological breakdowns. They were marked by so much shame. And yet when I hear Walter Brueggemann assert that memory produces hope, these are the ancestral stories that I reference. Not because they're tragic and painful, but because I am amazed. I am amazed that even with all the pain that lives in just these few generations of my family, our parents managed to break so many cycles of suffering. And to borrow a phrase from Richard Rohr, they managed to transform their pain instead of transfer their pain. This wasn't an intellectual exercise. It wasn't a sheer exertion of will. It involved lots of psychotherapy, <laughs> rigorous personal work, 
nourishing friendships and partnerships, and actually deep engagement in Unitarian Universalist congregations. And I know that with all this tragedy and pain, it is also true and it's important to say that our families did not have to deal with so many of the things that have weighed down others. Things like racism and redlining, homophobia and discrimination based on so much. White privilege was definitely at play and there were some very lucky breaks. However, for me, the grace-filled reality remains that when I remember my roots, I realize that my very life is a testament to the human capacity for healing and transformation. Our parents were able to interrupt cycles of pain and hurt and to give my husband and I childhoods that were so much more stable and trustworthy and warm than anything they had ever personally known. And now Jason and I have that example to call upon as we raise our own child. It gives me so much hope when I see you engaging in this work of cycle breaking right now in your lives, bringing a kind of love and goodness into the world that you know in your heart, and you can see it in your imagination, but you didn't actually experience it yourself. And I see you bringing your tender hearts here. I see you volunteering in religious education classrooms. I see you loving your kids and loving other people's kids. I see you creating community and digging into social justice work together because you know that there is something more life-giving, more loving out there, and that is something that we do together. And I want to tell you that it is so fitting that there are so many cycle breakers in this place so many spiritual warriors among us, because that is who we come from. Breaking cycles of pain and injustice, it's in our universalist DNA. It's what we do. We dismantle institutions that challenge that deep knowing that we have, that we are all within the circle of humanity and that no one is set apart from the pull of divine love. Our congregation's universalist roots go back more than 155 years. And I want to share with you some of the cycle breaking that we have done as a people. This is our lineage. In the face of slavery, universalists had a strong abolitionist stance. And in 1842, nearly 20 years before the Civil War, the Universalists formally condemned slavery at our general convention, declaring it inconsistent with the love at the core of our faith. Around that time, we brought the same convictions to prison reform and to ending capital punishment. Women's rights, and breaking the cycles of sexism, that's a strong part of our history. The first woman in the United States to graduate from theological school 
as well as the first woman to be ordained into full-time ministry, that was a universalist minister, Olympia Brown. The first continent-wide women's organization in the United States, just for women, that is said to be the Association of Universalist Women, which is still very alive in this congregation. Woo-woo. So while we're clapping, I just have to give a little shout out to Clara Barton, a universalist and a bold female medic who defied danger to care for the wounded in the Civil War. And interrupting cycles of tyranny from state-sponsored religion, universalists long stood for a separation of church and state. We established non-sectarian schools and academies like Tufts University and St. Lawrence College, most of which were also designed to provide education to girls and women at a time when it was very rare. And this congregation, First Universalist Church of Minneapolis, we also have a rich heritage of cycle breaking. From 1897 to 1968, we interrupted cycles of xenophobia and classism through Unity Settlement House, which offered social services for immigrants in Minneapolis's poorest neighborhoods. And this legacy lives on today in our First Universalist Foundation. During the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, we, we offered our full support, and our Minister Emeritus, John Cummins, marched at Selma and he also condemned the Vietnam War and offered sanctuary to a conscientious objector in our church building, despite the fact that the FBI called him up on the phone and demanded that he turn that person over. And he said no. <coughs> Later, we also offered sanctuary to Central American refugees. And these days, we're inviting families experiencing homelessness to call our church home through families moving forward. So as a faith grounded in an all-embracing love, we continue to be cycle breakers here, to say no to systemic racism, to environmental degradation, to housing inequality. Through our Our Whole Lives sexuality education program, we are actively breaking down cycles of sexism, of rape culture, of homophobia, and together, we are sustaining this community deeply grounded in love, listening to where that love is calling us next. And so if it is true that memory is a source of hope and amnesia leads us to despair, and if it is true that we are located in the flow of history, and if it is true that as religious liberals in a historically universalist church, it is our work to break cycles of injustice and pain, then I wonder, what cycles are you called to break? What are the cycles that you need to go to your grave knowing that you wrestled and you resisted and you did what was in your power to transform. And right now, that might mean doing something big, like changing careers, or fostering a child, or heading out to Standing Rock in solidarity, 
And if you would like to do that next week, actually, and go to North Dakota, we have some Unitarian Universalist contingents heading out there with Moose Jaw. Or maybe it's something that fits into your shape, the shape of your daily life. Maybe it looks like taking time out during an argument when your temper is burning out of control. Or modeling for a child what it looks like to cherish and appreciate your body. Or working your recovery program as the light becomes less and we head into the holidays. If we will have the wisdom to survive, to stand like slow growing trees on a ruined place, renewing, enriching it, then a long time after we are dead, the lives our lives prepare will live here. On the steeps where greed and ignorance cut down an old forest, an old forest will stand. This is hard work. And we are not alone. We are accompanied by everyone who has gone before us, empowered by the memory of everyone who has transformed pain instead of transferring it. We locate ourselves in a lineage of cycle breakers, and may this work be our prayer, may it be our legacy, and one day, may we all walk together in the valley of peace. May it be so, amen. <laughs>